0: Last week in Revelation chapter 4, we were lifted up into this heavenly temple worship, the scene of worship unto the living God, the one who sits on the throne. And today in chapter 5, that same scene continues. The two chapters belong inseparably together as a kind of liturgical or worship drama in two parts. And so we'll look at the text under six headings. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. The first point, then, is the scroll itself. We're in Revelation chapter 5. John, still in the Spirit, still lifted up into the heavenly council, he sees in the hand of God, the one who sits on the throne, a scroll with writing... On both sides, or writing on the front and back. And that that the scroll is written on front and back means its contents are comprehensive. And that it's sealed, of course, means that its contents are also hidden. That it's sealed with seven seals means that its contents are fully hidden. Now it seems apparent later in the book when these seals get opened and from the revelation of the content of the scroll inside that the book or the scroll contains God's plan of judgment and redemption which culminates in the new heavens and the new earth. The scroll is not the Lamb's book of life. The scroll is not the Old Testament. It's not even the New Covenant. The seals and the book together unveil the content of virtually all the rest of the book of Revelation. That's what's in the hand of the one who's on the throne. And John sees this mighty angel. He's a spokesman for the heavenly council. And he makes this loud proclamation in the form of a question, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? This is really the question of who has sovereign authority to not only unveil the contents of the scroll, but to put it into force. To execute. Who has executive authority in the cosmic plan of God? And the text tells us no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth, no one in the cosmos is able to open the scroll or even look into it. And so John begins to weep loudly. Since no one was found worthy, the text says, to open the scroll. He grasps instinctively, John does, the importance of this scroll. The time for sealing up Revelation, as in Daniel, you heard this in the Old Testament lesson this morning, as in Daniel, is past. Daniel got a revelation. He was told, seal it up until the end. This is the end. The time for unsealing has arrived. And so if the kingdom purposes of God, the coming of the end are, is to come to fruition, the scroll has to be opened. And that brings us to the second point, which is the lion and the lamb. In Verse 5, one of the elders, and again, remember last week we said the elders are representatives of the heavenly church or of the church as a whole. But they're the church particularly viewed as a heavenly entity. One of the elders says to John, do not weep. And he commands him to look. He says, see, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has Triumphed or conquered. There's two Messianic titles here. Lion of the tribe of Judah and Root of David. One from Genesis 49, the other from Isaiah 11. And they both speak of the power of the Messiah to conquer, to slay his enemies with judgment. So the Messiah then is a conquering warrior king. And this one has indeed, the elder says, he has conquered. And his conquest is the basis of his worthiness, his fitness. He can now be the sovereign executor of the purposes of God that are hidden in the scroll. And what comes next is really astonishing, though perhaps familiar to us. But what happens here is crucial for grasping the message of the book of Revelation. And really, I would say, for grasping the Christian life. For grasping a Christian vision of history and its cataclysms. John sees in the middle of the scene, in the midst of the throne, not a lion that had just been described to him. Not a military conqueror or warrior, but he sees a lamb. He's told, he hears of the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. But when he turns and he looks, he sees the Passover lamb. He sees the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 standing, the text says, as though it had been slain. Literally as as though it had been slaughtered. He sees a slaughtered lamb. The slaughtering lion of the tribe of Judah. Or the, the conquering root of David who slays his enemy enemies with the breath of his mouth. You can read that in Isaiah 11. He now appears, and he appears as a slaughtered and slain lamb. This, this is how the messianic warrior king, the leader of the army of the Lord, conquers. Conquest is not by slaughter, but by being Slaughtered. We conquer by being conquered. This is at the heart of the mystery of the book and the Christian faith. And this sets the tone for the rest of the book. Conquest is now only and always by martyrdom or a form of martyrdom. By faithful witness unto death if need be. And so this vision of the slaughtered lamb changes the way the church, now suffering, about to be engulfed in suffering at the hands of the Roman beast. It changes the way she is to see, that you and I are to see, and to narrate history. It changes, if you will, the way we talk to ourselves as we engage a culture which might at points be hostile Notice, in the text, the Lamb, though slaughtered, is now standing in heaven. And thus the Lamb has been raised. He has been vindicated. Even as the martyrs, about to be slaughtered in the earth, shall be vindicated. And as such... He has seven horns, the text says, which are a symbol of fullness of power. And make no mistake, power here is political authority. John is not interested in some form of power that floats off in some other realm. What good will that do Christians on the ground struggling? These horns are a kind of righteous parody of the horns on Daniel's four beasts which represent world empires. There are righteous parody on the horns that will later appear on the satanic dragon. There are righteous parody of the horns that will appear on the beast. The beast of Rome's empire in chapter 13 of this book. Fullness of power John is telling the church. He is telling you and I, fullness of authority lies not in the empire not in our empire or any other empire, but with the slaughtered one who is now standing. And thus when he executes wrath, which he will do in due time in this very book, it will be called then the wrath of the Lamb. Now I think if we're honest Some of the scenes later in the book of Revelation cause us problems. They cause moderns problems. They're gruesome scenes. They're apocalyptic scenes. People are slaughtered in them. People are judged. People are consigned to hell. They're scenes that make people, honest people, reasonable people, recoil at points. It's important to see the one who's at the heart of those scenes. The one who's at the heart of those scenes is the slaughtered one. It will be, when it comes, when wrath comes, it will be the just and the pure and the holy meekness of the slaughtered one. Brought to bear. Brought to bear on the intractable evil for the sake of his people. For the restoration of his mangled creation. That's what wrath is in the book of Revelation. Slaughter at the hands of the slaughtered one is the only kind of just slaughter there is. And this is sovereign power, but while it is sovereign power, it is not raw totalitarian force. It is always the wrath of the lamb-like one. And so this one who John sees, in addition possesses the Spirit, here described as seven eyes, which are the sevenfold Spirit of God. This is the Spirit sent by the risen Christ out into the world to the church. And by that Spirit, Christ not only sees your plight, but He comforts and He supports and He upholds His suffering people in the earth. So this Lamb, then, in verse 7 he takes the scroll from the right hand of God, the one who is seated on the throne. And thus he assumes his sovereign executive role over the whole creation for the sake of the church. That is the lion and the lamb. or better, the lion who is the lamb. The third thing here is the living creatures and the elders. And here you have this orderly kind of rippling expanding choir, having taken the scroll, the four living creatures which stand for the whole animate creation, and the 24 elders who stand for the church of all ages. We saw this last week. The living creatures, the 24 elders, they fall down, and now they worship the Lamb. Remember last week in chapter 4, all worship was ascribed to God the Father, the one who sits on the throne. Here, remarkably, the Lamb, and by implication, the sevenfold spirit which he possesses, are worshipped. John is a full-blooded Trinitarian. And each of these 24 elders, they hold a harp the text says, and golden bowls of incense. These elders have harps because, and we touched on this last week a little too, I believe, they have harps because they are a symbol of the 24 orders of Levitical singers. First Chronicles tells us that the Levitical singers prophesy with harps. Just as an aside here, it's important to note again, John just assumes we know this stuff. He assumes you know the book of 1 Chronicles. You know that there are 24 orders of Levitical. He's doing this at every point. The book of Revelation is so useful to us that way as a prod. They have golden bowls of incense in addition to the harps because they're Levitical priests. And they offer up and they mediate incense, which the text says the incense is the prayers of the saints. So these elders, worshiping, ministering in the heavenly sanctuary, they incense, if you will, the Holy of Holies. They hold the incense over the Holy of Holies, and what the Holy of Holies is, is the throne of God. And they incense it with the petitions of the saints. So the prayers of the saints arise, and the heavenly hosts gather them up. And then they and the heavenly hosts pour them out like incense right on the throne of God, much as an old testament priest would incense the Holy of Holies. And so the background here besides the use of incense in the temple, it comes from Psalm 141, where David says, let my prayer, O Lord, be counted as incense before you, and let the lifting of my, of my hands be as the evening sacrifice. Now in that context, David's praying for vindication, divine vindication, and these prayers are also for Among other things, they are also for divine vindication. Because in the next chapter, we are going to see the slain martyrs under this heavenly altar crying out for vindication. So this is enormously important as well. It means a couple things to us. At first, it means that the prayers of God's suffering ones, no matter how long they are deferred, are being heard in heaven. Right, the prayers of the martyrs in the next chapter, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you vindicate our blood, until you avenge our blood, those prayers, they've not yet been answered. They're 2,000 years old, but they've been perfectly well heard. Same thing with all your prayers. They're perfectly well heard. And even more relevant It means that the prayers of the church when she is gathered for worship and when we are gathered for worship we are gathered around this throne with this very throng. This text teaches us that the prayers of the church are the instruments by which the saving judgments of God are cast down into the earth. We'll see a lot more of this in Revelation later. Liturgy is warfare. Corporate prayer drives history. The simple pattern is this. The prayers of the saints arise. They're received in heaven. They are incensed before the throne. And what we'll see that the Lord does with that incense is he takes it, he puts it in a censer, and he hurls down judgments into the earth. Your prayers are what Eugene Peterson called reversed thunder. Reversed thunder. when we pray for the Lord's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, when we pray for deliverance from evil, we are offering up incense. And it's being mediated by these angelic beings before the throne of God. We are praying for the removal of his enemies and the redemption of the world. Liturgy is lethal activity. All the judgments in the book of Revelation issue forth from this throne, and they issue forth in response to the prayers of the saints offered as incense. The corporate praying of the church is the decisive driver of history. Now, this doesn't mean we can connect the dots in any one-to-one, one-to-one fashion. We can't say, we prayed for this, therefore uh, Iran got a nuclear weapon, or something like that. That would be silly. The connection is ineffable, but the connection is real. So, these creatures and elders, in verse 9, they sing a new song. And what's in view, as the song itself makes plain, is God's inauguration Of the new creation in Christ. The new song always means in response to the new thing that God has done to bring in the new order. And the content of the song is that the lamb is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because he was slain. And by his blood he purchased, he redeemed a people for God. Again, his death is the decisive event in history. The death here. He's worthy because he was slain. Again, it it highlights the ironic nature of the triumph. And so in accordance with the promises that go all the way back to Abraham, he's purchased a people, the text says, from every tribe, language, people, nation. The church is the great multicultural organization. This fourfold phrase, tribe, Language, people, nation, it represents the whole world. Four is the number of the world in Scripture. The four winds of the heavens, the four corners of the earth, the four living creatures representing all creation. So this is the brimming fullness of the international people of God. And the goal of this purchase, the text says, is that we, as the new Israel, are to assume the privileges given to Israel at Sinai as a kingdom of priests unto God, who shall reign in part now, fully later, on the earth. Fourth, the myriads of angels. John looks in verse 11, and uh, he hears the voices of many angels. And here he doesn't have a Greek number big enough to recount the scene. So what he does is he just piles up the biggest numbers he has at his disposal. Greek doesn't have lots of really big numbers in it. So thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000, an innumerable host of angels. And they sing in harmony in verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And so the praise of the lamb is now expanding to fill the heavenly sanctuary. And next, contrary to the emperor who had regional choirs to sing his praise all throughout the empire, they ascribe to the lamb all the attributes of kingship. Power, wealth, wisdom, and might. These are attributes of the lamb. And the last three terms, honor, glory, and blessing, they're the response of the angelic host Now that the lamb has assumed his executive role, his kingship. The fifth thing here is every living thing. You see this in verse 13. Here the choir becomes cosmic, fully inclusive. John hears every creature, he says, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. And just for effect, John adds the completely redundant phrase and all that is in them. He's trying to drive home the universality of this acclamation to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. This is nothing less here than the anticipation of the future universal acclaim that the Lord God and the lamb shall receive in the new creation. That's the scene John has lifted up to. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. And finally, there's this Amen at the end. You can see this very orderly, structured and grand liturgy. The same beings, the living creatures and the elders who started this expanding circle of praise, they echo and affirm the adoration of the whole creation, of the whole cosmos, respectively by saying amen and falling down to worship. So, this scene here, along with the one we looked at last week from chapter 4, is perhaps the most exhilarating passage in all of Scripture. It's one of those texts that one hesitates to preach on It's good and necessary to analyze it, as we've done. But analysis can obscure and create a kind of unhealthy detachment with a text like this. The sheer thrill of this text is best captured simply by reading it slowly and reverently. And I want to charge you to do that. These two chapters... They have to seep down into our bones a bit. We have to sit in the midst of the heavenly host. And read the chapters. Read them over and over. If I could be so bold, put aside some of your normal Bible reading and absorb this vision. Because this is a summons to achieve our chief end. To glorify God. To enjoy him forever. These are two of the greatest chapters in all of Scripture. Don't let them just pass you by. You have to own these chapters. There's a test on these chapters at the end. <laughs> this God, in this scene, he hears all your prayers. And this lamb sees all your sorrows and all your sufferings. And his blood has placed you into this throng. You're not an outsider to this scene. And our worship is not detached from this scene. You've been placed into this scene. So ascribe to him the glory that's due his name. This is your joyful destiny. It's the destiny of the whole creation. Amen.